Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Zachary Shore, author of the book, This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. Zachary, welcome to the New Books Network. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I'm a professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, but I also have two other appointments, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and uh, also a fellow at uh, UC Berkeley's Institute of European Studies. So I cover a lot of territory. Yeah, that's quite a number of hats you wear. (laughs) And it can be a lot of commuting too. So yes, but it's good. So what led you to write this book? Remember the, the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban and the chaotic scenes at the gate to the airport? Mm-hmm. That was something that just uh, really struck me as uh, a time when Americans were, were saying, this just is not who we are as a nation. And it was reminiscent of in a very different context, the killing of George Floyd and the massive protests that came out all across the country in big cities and tiny towns of people saying, this is not who we are. And uh, even before that, the, the problem under the Trump administration of taking children at the border from their parents and locking them in cages, again, across the political divide, you could hear people saying, this is not who we are. And what they were really saying, of course, is this is not who we want to be as a nation. And so as a historian, I wanted to take a look back at an earlier time when Americans were also extremely upset or concerned and uneasy about what their government was doing in their name. And at a pivotal moment in American history during and shortly after World War II, when America emerges as a global superpower. I thought that was a fascinating choice because it is a, a moment which is, we look back on nowadays uh, with, with, with so much uh, with, with so much nostalgia, with, with, with so much uh, pride in, in terms of it. And yet, as you point out, there were a, a lot of things that uh, we we discussed doing, that we implemented, that we uh, that we did, that you know oftentimes seem at, at variance with our values and, and that we today, in, in some respects, still find uh, very controversial to discuss. Absolutely. That's very true. Yes. And there were three in particular that I wanted to focus on. The internment of Japanese Americans, the dropping of the atomic bombs, and the decision to essentially starve the Germans during occupation after the war. These three cases have all been studied in depth they haven't really been looked at as uh, interconnected or as uh, questions of uh, tough moral choices where the vengeful policies were being combated by large numbers of people who really were opposed to these policies of revenge. This was what one of the things that surprised me most in the research for this book. I fully expected that in a time of war, demands for revenge and 
mistreatment of an enemy would be running high. And yet exactly the opposite was true. The majority of Americans and the majority, and sometimes the overwhelming majority, of key officials favored mercy, not revenge. And yet a minority managed to push their vengeful policies through. I wanted to understand how and why that happened. I thought that you did that beautifully with your examination of the Japanese internment, which was something that I felt that I knew a little bit about, but I did not know anywhere degree uh, to uh, to anywhere to the degree of the complexity of it, how it was, as you point out at the end of, of your examination of it, really down to three people, and not necessarily people who were actively pushing for it, but simply people who did not, in, in, in vital positions, who did not have the desire or the wherewithal or the, or the authority to really, you know, put that stop to it. So you have a lot of people that were pushing a get back against this notion of internment, but it really was down to those key individ three individuals and their action or inaction, which turned it into a reality. Yes. What was amazing is just how many people did not want this to go through among the leadership. Actually, I wonder if we can back up for a minute and talk about the American public, because that was interesting and a, a surprise to me as well. Because when you read accounts of the time, you, you get the impression that Americans were absolutely rabid in their insistence that Japanese and Japanese Americans be forced out of their homes and put into these concentration camps. And so I started looking into that, you know, and it turns out that the government was taking public opinion surveys at the time to get a read on what people wanted. And they were focusing, of course, on the West Coast, which is where the vast majority, about 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans were located. And uh, from that data, I found a government survey that showed on the whole of the West Coast, or most of the West Coast, only 14% actually supported the idea of interning Japanese Americans. It was a little bit higher in Southern California at about a third, but still far from the vast majority that you would think from the reports and the literature. Now, I, I, that got me interested. So I started digging deeper and trying to find more surveys. And I found others that showed support for internment as high as 19% and as low as 10%. But again, still far below what I was expecting. Now, we can't take can't make too much of these surveys because they're of you know of questionable statistical significance. We don't know exactly how many people always were surveyed and uh, how reliable these were, but still they give us some indication that there wasn't the overwhelming support for internment until this is these surveys, by the way, were taken two months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, when you would expect that hatred toward anyone of Japanese descent might have been at its peak. But we don't really see a change until after February 19th, when the president issues his infamous executive order 9066, calling for the removal of Japanese and Japanese Americans from their homes. After that point, then you really see a spike in people demanding that uh, the Japanese be interned. So it seems as though that support for the internment is manufactured. That consent is being manufactured in part. 
that was a surprise. And uh, let me stop there, and then I can tell you more about that, or or talk more about the uh, the people at the higher levels. Well, I, I, I that that part of it I, I thought was especially interesting because it, how, especially when you know, after the fact, the public support is cited as a way of excusing the the choice that was made, and and, and that's that that dynamic I, I found especially uh, fascinating. But and it's also interesting to me that they that that was invoked given the fact that. Uh, you know, of the three people that you discussed in terms of really the, the key ones behind the decision, one of them, Franklin Roosevelt, was, was dead by the time that you really saw this, the, the, the post-war second-guessing about the internment. And, and, and the key, the person who I thought in your narrative stood out as, as the most uh, critical, John McCloy, never seemed to express much doubt about uh, the decision after it was made. Not only did he not express doubt, but uh, at the time, went to extreme lengths to ensure that the internment order was not overturned. First, he tried to manipulate American public opinion and garner support for it. He was talking with one of the leading conservative radio hosts at the time, a guy named Fulton Lewis. He had a nationwide broadcast listened to by millions of Americans. And McCloy would get on the phone with him. I have the records. We've seen this. And uh, we can see what he's telling the radio host to say, you know, talk up the government's role in the internment, how well we're managing it and uh, why this is important. So that's one avenue of attack. He's trying to uh, generate public support for this. Another thing he does is that he fabricates documents, subverts uh, the legal system, you know, that there are challenges, of course, to internment. Uh, many people have heard of the famous uh, Fred Korematsu case that went to the Supreme Court. There was another case, um, Hirabayashi, Gordon Hirabayashi was a student who uh, opposed the internment. Uh, these cases make their way to the Supreme Court and McCloy actually suppresses key evidence that could easily have caused the justices on the Supreme Court to overturn the president's order. Uh, he stops the presses. He prevents certain reports from getting out. It's, it's remarkable obstruction of justice. Not only is he not repentant, but at the end of his life, uh, he's still supporting this policy into the late 80s, uh, 1988, 89. He gets called before Congress. And uh, I don't want to give away what happens at the, at the end of the book too much, but uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, session he has in a, at a congressional inquiry. You have Senator Chuck Grassley there. You have uh, Congressman Barney Frank, uh, some people who would be you know, familiar to us today, really questioning uh, McCloy on what he did during this, this episode. And the, and, and how it was, in so many ways, that determination and the you know lack of, of real you know will to stand up to him that that is key, despite the fact that as you also described, there were so many uh, people within the Justice Department, even uh, military intelligence. Not not a lot of people, but but you know people in very in these positions where they would have a you know, we might think of an interest in, in playing it safe, who are nonetheless, you know, doing everything that they can uh, to uh, 
to, to try to prevent the internment from taking place. This also amazed me, the sheer number of people who were telling Roosevelt, this is not what we should be doing. So first you have uh, a naval intelligence guy, uh, Commander Ringel, and he writes, he's the expert on the Japanese American and Japanese alien population on the West Coast. He speaks fluent Japanese. He'd served as a military attache in Tokyo. And he writes a report on the threat faced by what the country might face by saboteurs. And he was a guy who would be, you would expect to be uh, looking for saboteurs and wary of it because uh, he had busted an actual Japanese spy ring in Los Angeles. So he knew that it was a real threat. But looking at the population as a whole, he wrote his report and said, there is no threat here. Overwhelmingly, the Japanese American population and Japanese aliens uh, are not only threatening, and uh, they are, are really uh, wanting to be here. It's not a concern. Then J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, writes a separate report because Roosevelt wanted to see if, you know, what, what the real story is. And Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover says, it's true. There's, there's no threat here. Nothing to be concerned about. So Roosevelt wants to make absolutely sure <laughs> that he's getting the real story. So he, in, in classic uh, FDR fashion, he gets someone out of government, outside of the loop, uh, a businessman named Carl Munson, to go out to the West Coast. And uh, this was someone FDR had had dealings with in the past. And he says, take the temperature, find out for me what's really going on there and send me a report. And Munson writes back after going up and down the coast and talking with people. He says, not only are the Japanese Americans not a threat, but there is a threat here. And it's to the safety of the Japanese Americans from the white community that is hostile toward them. Those, that group that is uh, concerned about the uh, economic success of Japanese Americans, they uh, have some resentment toward them. And so that's the real threat there. It's, it's to that population of Japanese Americans, not from Japanese Americans. So really, you would think that would be enough. But then you pile on the fact that the Attorney General, Francis Biddle, was totally against this policy of internment. Um, uh, the Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, called it a hysterical overreaction, totally impractical. He didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, you go down the list, and then there's Eleanor Roosevelt, who had a very interesting and awkward uh, position where she had to support the internment, even though it was not what she really believed. Another area where you see, you know, what we might think of as a vengeful policy formulation was with regard to Germany. And, and you described the, the the effort to starve them, but you also, uh, in your book, describe the plans that were being discussed and promoted uh, to deindustrialize them. And I, and I mentioned because uh, they included uh, among uh, one of the people you've already just mentioned, uh, Henry Morgenthau. And I, I thought it's interesting about how you have him in one case. It, it's an interesting example about how it's not necessarily uh, angels and demons, that you have someone who is pushing for a compassionate end in, in, in one case, but then in another, he is the person who is arguing for something that Americans might say is, is not who we are. So if you have the first key incident of eventual policy being the internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans, and only a minority supporting it, the second key eventual policy was this 
starvation of the Germans under occupation. And I, I think I think we should probably step back for a moment and try to explain to the listeners. Most people are familiar with the Marshall Plan. They know that this was a multi-billion dollar transfer of wealth from America to Europe after the war to help rebuild. And scholars have almost uh, unanimously said that this is one of the wisest, best, most successful policies that the U.S. government engaged in in the second half of the 20th century. But the Marshall Plan was actually a reverse course. It was the undoing of the initial policy that America had toward Germany for the first two, two and a half years from the end of the war in April 1945, May 1945, to uh, the time that the Marshall Plan aid really gets going is not until it's announced in 47, doesn't really kick in until 48. So there's really a long period there when U.S. policy is contributing to and greatly exacerbating the suffering of average Germans. It was so bad. Well, actually, okay, let me explain what it was. The Morgenthau plan, Henry Morgenthau Jr. was the secretary of the treasury, served throughout almost the whole of the FDR administration, so nearly 12 years. He was uh, a very prominent, powerful man in Washington. And he had this idea that the best thing to do with Germany after the war was to send them back in time, basically, to break up the country's heavy industry and reduce Germany to an agrarian state so that they could never bother anyone again. Basically, his thought was they launched both these two world wars and uh, we have to prevent them from doing it again by removing their ability to manufacture the weapons of war. If we just strip them of all heavy industry, that should solve the problem. That was his thinking. Everyone else just about in government realized that what he was really calling for was starvation of the Germans, that that would be the result. That's not what Morgenthau said he wanted. In fact, he would have said that he didn't want them to starve. And he did detailed studies of how much food they would need to grow in order to eke out a subsistence. And he said, yes, they would suffer greatly, but that's less important than uh, keeping the world safe. But everyone else said, look, this is going to be a disastrous policy, not only because it will inflict suffering on innocent children and uh, German citizens, and don't forget how many actually opposed the Nazis. At at their very peak, the Nazis only got one third of the the vote. In any case, uh, this plan of Morgenthau's was fought against by many other people in the government, Henry Stimson, was the primary one against them. He was the secretary of war. And he felt, if you want to rebuild Europe, you have to rebuild Germany because they're the economic engine of Europe. They're going to drive a recovery. It's good for everyone if the Germans can rebuild and the U.S. needed to help. So there's a big uh, back and forth. Morgenthau has an in with FDR. They're close friends. They see each other on weekends sometimes. Morgenthau has access to the president that others don't have. And so he's able to use that personal friendship to keep the president on board with his very harsh Morgenthau plan. In the end, uh, they work out a compromise, which is less harsh than Morgenthau's original plan, but still extremely harsh. And what it does is it forbids US occupying forces from helping the Germans to rebuild. 
And that leads to tremendous suffering. Sorry for such a long answer, but I thought that was necessary to explain what this is all about. No, it, it makes sense because it was, it, it, even as we, as you point out, you know, we had that restraint. It was still something that was uh, you know, distinctly different from what we remember it to be. But I, I don't want to get too far ahead in, in terms of, of talking about uh, that, 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 uh, inverse side that you that you discussed a little bit later in your book. Before we get to that, I, I want to discuss the, the third case that you talk about, which is you know probably the most famous, which is the uh, decision to drop the atomic bomb, which we oftentimes frame in terms of the choice of bomb or invasion. And yet, as you explain it, it was hardly that binary, and and it was hardly that clinical of a decision either. It really was much more complicated than that. And I when there's a reason. There's an actual concrete reason why we think of this in terms of a simple choice between saving American and allied lives that would have been lost in an invasion of Japan or sacrificing Japanese lives with the dropping of the atomic bombs. We think that because it's how it was framed intentionally so by Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, in a, an article in Harper's Magazine shortly after the war. Well, here's the background to that. The reason Stimson wrote this article, which, and he was not really the main author. There were other people behind the scenes who were working on this piece, uh, but his name went on it because he was the most respected elder statesman at that point. He was nearly 80, I think. Uh, and uh, the problem is that they needed people to believe in the bomb's necessity. And that was part because while Americans seemed to support the dropping of the bombs when it happened, a year later, a man named John Hersey wrote this article in The New Yorker, and it was so powerful and so long that The New Yorker decided to devote its entire issue just to his article. And the magazine sold out and then had to go into many more print runs. It was then picked up on national radio. Uh, newspapers reprinted it. Uh, Americans were absolutely riveted by his piece because it was the first time that they really got to learn about what actually happened as a result of the dropping of the bombs. What happened to average civilians? The melting, I'm sorry, this is going to be a bit gruesome. He describes how people's faces were melted away, how their skin was uh, sloughed off their, their bodies in, in sulfuric uh, incinerations, the, the charring of, of flesh. I mean, it's, it's, it's more gruesome than I wish to talk about. And uh, Americans were reading about this and were both horrified and riveted. In that context, Henry Stimson, former Secretary of War, was asked, to write this article and explain to Americans why they had to use the bombs. And so he, but really these other people who were part of the decision, uh, didn't want Americans to lose faith in nuclear power and nuclear weapons because of the coming Cold War with the Soviets. And that was part of it. So to justify this, he wrote this article and they framed the debate in these simple terms. It was either option A, the use of the atomic bombs and killing Japanese civilians, or option B, the blockade and invade. And if you invaded, they said we would lose likely a million allied soldiers. 
that is an extremely problematic uh, formulation. Shall I try to tease out why that, why that is and what the other options were? So, but it gets, the fact that he had to write this article, as you demonstrated, points to how Americans were, again, asking that question. This is not who we are. And you turn to this idealization, not idealization is not the right word, this effort to, to listen to our better angels. And you focus initially upon post-war relief, not not the Marshall Plan at first, but instead the effort to feed Europe after the war. And, and here you describe the, uh, perhaps to some unlikely heroism, of Herbert Hoover and how Truman employs him to the, this person who is uh, associated uh, in the minds of so much of the public with uh, the Great Depression, the uh, failure to, to, to respond adequately to it, and how he undertakes this, this effort to make America uh, the, the, the country that we want to be in, in terms of dealing with this post-war crisis that wasn't limited just to Germany, but was really throughout much of Europe. And, and you have this thread in your book where you describe how it was that that was not just Hoover going there and pledging food and food being sent over, but how it was something that connected with Americans in a way to make them feel as though we were indeed being our best selves. That's exactly what Hoover tried to do to raise Americans to a higher plane and get them to overcome any desires for vengeance and really play on their deep-seated humanity. Here's the interesting thing. Hoover is brought back. Hoover, everyone associates with the Great Depression, and that's usually all we know about him. And he enters a sort of political purgatory after 1932 when he's defeated by FDR. FDR never wants him to come into the White House, never consults with him, despite that he's the world's leading expert on humanitarian relief based on his really heroic efforts, saving millions of lives uh, during World War I. Uh, but throughout World War II, they're very much at odds. And uh, then after FDR dies and Truman becomes president, he's encouraged to bring Hoover back into the White House for consultations because we know that a major famine is, ha is going to be facing the world after the war. And it's obvious. We know that there's going to be a food crisis, global food crisis, because of the destruction caused by the war. Think about all the bombing of roads and bridges, canals, and uh, uh, infrastructure has been shattered. And so farmers can't produce food and can't bring that food, what they have, to the cities. So all around Europe and Asia, especially, there's a massive food crisis looming, and Hoover is the expert. So Truman brings Hoover in for consultation. And Hoover tells Truman what he's going to need to do. But in that meeting in 1945, Hoover takes that opportunity to also suggest how to end the war with Japan. And here, it's a complicated story of how he inadvertently moves Truman closer to the use of the bomb. Now, Hoover didn't know about the existence of the bomb, but it was... Secretary of State uh, Henry Stimson, who wanted, who got Hoover back into the White House to talk with Truman, and who I think was really using Hoover to help move Truman in the direction that Stimson wanted. Stimson, like many others in government, was very uncomfortable. I'm going to talk a little bit about the bomb here, and then I'm going to talk about the post-war 
food relief. But these things are interconnected. We need to understand these connections. So Hoover, uh, well, I'm sorry, Stimson and many others are trying to move the president away from option B, blockade and invade. And Stimson is extremely uneasy about the use of the atomic bomb, killing thousands, unknown thousands of innocent civilians. He's looking for another option, an option C. And that, that option C is conditional surrender. Instead of demanding unconditional surrender of the Japanese, like what was done with the Germans, offer them one condition and say, if you'll surrender, we will allow you to keep the Japanese emperor on the throne. He will not be hanged as a war criminal. He'll be safe from prosecution. And the idea was that if the U.S. just offered the Japanese that one condition, they might surrender and we could all go home. The war could end. No more loss of life. No need for the atomic bombs. No need for an invasion. Option C seemed like an elegant, sensible solution. In Hoover's follow-up memorandum, he tells Truman in the White House that if you invade Japan, you're probably going to lose half a million to a million American lives. And that really seems to have spooked Truman. No president, especially a brand new president, just you know, fresh on the job, and most people had not even heard of Harry Truman before he becomes president. No one wants to be in that situation of, of risking so many lives. That uh, leads Truman to uh, be very, very wary of the invasion. And uh, I think Stimson and Hoover and others were hoping that Truman would end up uh, pushing for option C, conditional surrender, which seemed like the most sensible solution to everyone. But for reasons I explain in the book, Truman instead decides to go with the use of the atomic bomb. Okay. Now let me talk about, <laughs> sorry for the, for that, but it was a necessary no sidetrack. Okay. Yes. I had to wrap that up. Okay. <clears throat> In the post-war period, Hoover is brought back into the limelight after years and years of, of political purgatory. Uh, you know, he was blamed for the Great Depression. When people uh, were homeless and they used newspapers to cover themselves, they called those Hoover blankets. Uh, a pocket turned inside out was called a Hoover flag. Uh, you know, just everything that happened was put on his shoulders rather unfairly. Yeah, he deserves some blame, but it's largely his predecessors who failed to regulate the markets. Okay, so Hoover, the expert and also known as the great humanitarian, is now brought back in 1946. Uh, it really gets going. And he helps to organize a massive global food campaign that ends up saving hundreds of millions of people from starvation. This is an extraordinary effort that most Americans don't know about. It's absolutely mind-boggling, both the scale of suffering and the scope of his efforts traveling around the world. Uh, he was a logistics master, absolutely. And with the president, President Truman's backing, he goes on these uh, fact-finding missions, but really his, his role is to raise uh, the American public to giving, to convince them to give, that this is a serious crisis, that people are starving and they need to help. And so the uh, president, Truman, builds on that. He uses Hoover to help get Americans, as you said, to their better angels. But then he has to do something else. He has to 
employ other means to convince Americans that they really have to keep sacrificing, even though we're now in a time of peace, all the sacrificing they had done during the war, they thought would be over once they'd won. And now the president is asking them to sacrifice again. And in fact, go hungry some several days a week in order to free up more grain to send to Europe and Asia. And uh, this is another remarkable story that I tell in the book about uh, just how they do that, how they get Americans to keep sacrificing and save millions of lives in the process. I, I thought it really tied well into the theme of your book in terms of how successfully uh, the program was presented to Americans. Sold is a, a word that I, is appropriate considering the way you describe it. And, and how it was about Americans collectively saying, this is who we want to be. This is you know, the, the kind of nation we want to be. And, and then you tie that into how the policy shifted uh, after the war re with regard to Germany, about how there was a uh, not just a practical appreciation of, of, of the importance of reconstructing Germany for, for the European economy, but also the, the sense that Americans didn't want to be that, that, that vengeful spirit that, that Morgenthau's uh, policy uh, or, or, or proposals uh, might have uh, turned us into. When you say the policy was sold to the Americans, you're right. And, and Literally, because Truman gets a salesman, a, a savvy young soap salesman, <laughs> to sell his <laughs> policy to America. It's, it's remarkable. He calls on the nation's top salesman, uh, a guy named Charles Luckman. Most people have never heard of. He was, uh, wanted to be an architect, but when the Great Depression hit, nobody was building new buildings. And so he uh, switched, he pivoted to sales and found that he had some extraordinary knack for it. And by age 27, he was elevated to the president of Pepsodent. And uh, a few years after that, early 30s, he's heading Unilever and uh, controlling all these companies. He's really a remarkable character in his ability to persuade. So Truman enlists him. He calls him up one day in 1947 and says, uh, we need you. Would you come to Washington immediately and help run an emergency food committee? And Luckman agrees. He hangs up the phone with the president and he picks up the phone again and calls the top seven advertising agencies in the US all on Madison Avenue, the mad men of Madison Avenue. And they get about a hundred people into a hotel for the weekend and brainstorm. And they all put forth their best ideas for a campaign to get Americans to sacrifice more and eat less in order to free up shipments to, to Europe. They put through this campaign at remarkable speed. They put up, they print up posters. It normally takes three weeks at least to print up posters and billboards and such. They do it in three days. They spread them out across the country and put up in churches and schools and any public place. Save wheat, save meat, save the peace. That's their slogan. And Truman, gets on TV, even though there's uh, national radio, of course, the four major radio networks, and also TV. It's the first television broadcast from the White House in 1947. And the occasion is that he wants to tell the American people about this food crisis and what they need to do to solve it. And it's basically stop eating, stop eating meat on 
Tuesdays, stop eating poultry on Thursdays, and uh, eggs, and cut down all our consumption so that we can save people's lives. That's a tough sell under any circumstances. And it is amazing that so many Americans went along with it. And yet, of course, as you would expect, many were opposed to it. And the number one or the very first opponents were the poultry producers. They didn't want people to stop eating eggs and chicken. Uh, And so in protest, they sent crates of live chickens to the White House uh, in order to embarrass the president. And uh, so you had these squawking chickens on the steps of the the White House and the media immediately dubbed them Harry's hens and uh, (laughs) Luckman's leghorns for Charles Luckman, the salesman. And, uh, you know, that pressure campaign actually worked. And so they had to back off a bit and uh, change their approach. And they dropped uh, eggless, uh, one of the eggless campaigns. But what they realized was that as much as they could get Americans to eat less, the real savings in grain would come uh, from the feeding of chickens. And although this sounds uh, really unfortunate and is, they decided that the best way would be to kill 136 million chicks. Uh, that works. And then they also reduced the turkey population, even though Thanksgiving is, is coming up. And uh, through that, they're able to produce uh, a surplus of 56 million uh, I believe it's uh, bushels of, of wheat, of grain, and then uh, through other industries, all cutting back flour producers and uh, so on. And then finally, ultimately, alcohol producers, they, they shut down the distilleries and the, distilli- the, you know, the manufacturers, the people heading those companies are outraged. They don't want to shut down, but it's a voluntary basis. And there's a lot of uh, public... It would not, the optics would not be good if they refused to shut down because everybody's trying to do their part to help save a grain. So they do. They shut down for several months until Christmas of 47. And that pushes them over the, the limit. And they're able to get uh, 100 million bushels altogether. And that goes to Europe and uh, helps to save millions of lives. You find a similar effort as well in terms of dealing with Japan after the war, because, and that was for me was, was one of the uh, things I, I had not read as much about, which was how after the war, Americans, especially in response to Hersey's art article and, and uh, you know, the growing, you know, awareness of, of what the effects of the atomic bombing were, about how they, they, they threw themselves into uh Rebuilding Hiroshima, and as you explained there, it, there, there was you know it, it was it was emotionally very difficult in terms of uh, you know dealing with the uh, survivors and, and 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 their feelings about it, which they they uh, which were not necessarily ones of gratitude if at reconstruction, but uh, so anguish at, at having you know, suffered through uh, that unprecedented destruction. Here's one of the things that I think we've gotten wrong. We let me start with the. American opinion. We have this idea that Americans overwhelmingly supported the dropping of the atomic bombs. And that view is based, when you really look at the literature, it's based almost entirely on one Gallup survey taken a few days after the announcement of the dropping of the bombs that showed 85% of Americans in support. They asked people, do you support the dropping of the atomic bombs? Yes. (laughs) The problem is that no one knew what an atomic bomb was because one had never existed before. Uh, 
it was presented to the American people as simply a big bomb. Nothing about melting faces away or radiation sickness or cancer rates or spontaneous abortions that it caused or birth defects or any of the things that resulted from the atomic bombs. And so if you look a little deeper, as I did at other surveys, I found a Gallup poll just a few months before, two months, in fact, before the one that showed 85%. And in that survey, they asked Americans, would you support the use of poison gas against the Japanese if it helped to shorten the war? And nearly half said no. Only 40% said yes. It's inconceivable that Americans would support an atomic bomb, but oppose the use of poison gas. And as people have learned over time more about what the atomic bombs were and what they did and what they meant, you can see that public support dropping and dropping. The most recent one I've seen was from a few years ago, and that's at around uh, a little over 50% saying they support it. So it's quite a drop from the 85%. And still, most people don't know really what happened as a result of these atomic bombs. So if more people did know and were educated and even saw the effects, I should add something here as well. All we ever see as a visual from this is the mushroom cloud. And I was really curious, was there any footage taken at the time to show the immediate after effects of the bombs? And it wasn't easy, but it turns out that I found that there was a Japanese film crew that did take footage. And uh, then it was confiscated by the American occupation authorities. And it's now locked away in the National Archives, but I did get 16 minutes of it. And I've shown it to my students and uh, it has a powerful effect. It's it's quite, quite gruesome as you can only imagine. So I, th- I think that more people should see this. And again, I, sh- I should also add that I don't argue in the book for or against the use of the atomic bombs. In fact, the more that I've learned about how complicated this decision was, the more I've had to conclude that we can't know whether it was necessary or not. But what we can say is that there were some other options, pushing for conditional surrender, or option D, a demonstration of the bomb, uh, that could have been explored or tried And if they had failed, maybe, maybe the bombs would have been necessary, but it's really not possible to say. In any case, um, in Japan, on the Japanese side, um, Americans who were uh, in churches, started in a Presbyterian church, the movement to essentially atone for the dropping of the bombs and rebuild Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, this movement gather steam in America through different uh, national church organizations. And ultimately, at the national level, it's altered the plan to rebuild those cities and, and atone for that in particular. It's altered and is transformed into a movement to build a university outside of Tokyo. It's really still part of Tokyo, and it's called the International Christian University. It still exists today. I've been there and spent some time there digging in their archives And uh, uh, this is what Americans tried to do as uh, a way of changing Japanese society. And for some of them, I think it was an act of atonement. 
And yet it's fascinating to me about how in some ways it was so much easier for us to atone for uh, that and for what we had tried to do to Germany than what we tried to do to our own people. About how the you know, support was there, the, the 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 goodwill was there in the 1940s to uh, feed Europe, to to uh, uh, donate to rebuild Japan, but the compensation of the Japanese Americans for the internment doesn't come till 40 years later. That's correct. Yes, it's not until Ronald Reagan uh, announces the uh, Restitution Act, and it's really uh, minimal. It's only a few thousand dollars really to survivors. But what does happen is a kind of truth and reconciliation process in which uh, meetings are held across the country and survivors are able to share their stories and the children of survivors and document it all. And that's then compiled into a, a large government report on what happened and what the camps were like. And we're still today really learning more about it and gathering up the materials here, where I live, at the University of California at Berkeley, the libraries here have a dedicated section on this. And um, some of it is online now and available for people to uh, explore more about uh, what was happening, what the, the inmates were doing in the camps, and what life was like. And there are more and more exhibits. So we're learning more about it. But still, uh, you're right, it took 40 years for any kind of official recognition and compensation of the wrong that was done. We've taken a, a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I actually began this book on vengeance, wanting to write a book about wisdom. And hmm. that's, that got me asking, well, what were some of the wisest policies? How can we have greater wisdom in foreign affairs? That was the question I wanted to answer. And so I turned naturally first to the Marshall Plan. And in exploring that more deeply, I realized that the Marshall Plan was simply the reverse course of the Morgenthau Plan, the harsh, vengeful policy. And that got me thinking more about other uh, vengeful policies and the connections between wisdom and vengeance. And I ended up right, you know, getting sort of uh, deeper and deeper into the World War II and post-early Cold War uh, eras. But what I'd like to do is go back now and expand on wisdom in foreign affairs, wisdom in policies, and ask how can we get more of it? What constitutes it? How do we define it? How do we create it? Can we actually become wiser? Uh, really, can we learn wisdom? Can wisdom be learned? That's the question I want to ask. Do we have to wait until we're 85 or 90 years old, or can we actually <laughs> find some shortcuts? That's what I want to know. That sounds like a very worthy book. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. So do I. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zachary Short, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much.